the line with us, Peter Esho, co-founder of the real estate investment platform Wealthy. He's based in Sydney. Peter, good morning. Thanks very much for joining us today. So I'd like to start with the Australian property market because there have been murmurs of concerns in the Australian property market since the RBA's rate hike in May. How will a further increase in June affect sentiment in that sector? Do you Are we already seeing a slowdown in home sales? I think it's very important when we talk real estate to just put things in context. We've had a huge, huge price increase over the past two years. And over the past decade, uh, capital city markets are very similar in Australia than places in Asia where you are and in Singapore and in even the, the major cities in China. So we're coming off very, very high levels. And what we're seeing is each time central banks adjust rates, the property market and the overall economy is seeing a pullback in confidence. And real estate is a network asset. Real estate is really an asset that moves in line with sentiment and central banks increasing rates will always have the impact of dampening confidence and bringing people back to earth, which is actually a good thing if you're a long-term investor. That's a different story in China, isn't it, with respect to property markets there? Because they are going through a different reversal of fortunes. Would that be fair? I think that's fair. It's a very different market there. The market dynamics, if you have a look at the way that uh, wealth is invested, uh, the wealth management options available to the to the overall uh, ordinary investor, let's call them, they have very limited options as to where they park their money. The stock exchange is a lot more volatile. The wealth management industry is still growing and maturing, and you're always going to have more extremes. And what we actually are struggling here in Australia to understand is the extent uh, to which China's lockdowns are having an economic impact. We're all kind of scratching our heads and looking at anecdotal evidence and whatever we can sort of find online. But I think over the next few months, we'll start to see what the actual economic impact is of of the shutdown. Uh, And so we're all trying to figure it out. And that's the struggle, isn't it, Peter? Because if you look at anecdotal evidence, the markets have become so hypersensitized to data. Like, for example, when we saw Shanghai just reopen, you see Asian markets overall rarely. And, you know, when we see labor market reports of social tightening and such, also you see big correlations to equities. Is the market very much now hypersensitized to all these market information? I think that's a very good summary, and I think one of the big things at the moment is just the amount of leverage, the amount of debt that's, that's out there in the financial system. Uh, the amount of stimulus, fiscal, monetary, particularly in developed markets, you know, top G7 markets during the pandemic was just absolutely huge. And that's, that has to reverse, and the reversal is going to be very painful. And when you have a lot of leverage, a lot of debt in the financial system, you're going to get extremes. You're going to get panic. You're going to get, you know, things that don't necessarily make sense because the next 10 years are very different to the past 10 or 20 years. The leverage has to unwind. And so ordinary investors that are buying real estate, family offices that are trying to manage wealth and preserve wealth, and even institutional investors, they're all going through a different game. It's a very different ballpark. And for me, it's all about the direction of interest rates. If interest rates are heading up, regardless of where you're investing, equities, real estate, bonds, commodities, there's going to be an impact. And so the direction, when you're at zero, the only place you can go is up. I mean, you can technically go negative, 
but that's not a very sustainable thing. So we're going from ultra low to low, and you're going to have a lot of the things that you just mentioned, a lot of overreaction, a lot of people um, unclear and unsure. And I think that's what's going to dictate markets over the next couple of years, a lot of uncertainty. Fair enough, fair enough, Peter. Um, We we were talking about China earlier. I still want to stick to that kind of theme. Um, And I'm curious to see what you think about um, how uh, relations, trade relations between China and Australia will develop now that there's been a recent change of government in Australia. Do you think that there are expectations of a greater degree of rapprochement between the two countries? I think the expectations are there that we're starting with a fresh government, a fresh approach. Um, Time will tell you know, how much of the previous government's uh, stance was was long-term strategic and how much of it was political. Um, I think there's a sense of hope here in Australia that many ordinary Australians, many business owners like us don't want hostile relationships with China. It, contrary to expectations, it's not a very popular thing. We, In Sydney, for example, 10% of our population uh, speak Chinese. Um, different dialects. And so we're a very cosmopolitan, very integrated, very progressive society. And we don't like seeing governments, you know, getting involved and talking rhetoric. I'm sure it might be popular across the country in some regions, but it's definitely not popular in, in the major metropolitan cities. And so where we are, where we conduct our business, the, the people we talk to, there's a sense of hope. And mm-hmm. time will tell. It comes down to good government, good relations, And I'm actually hopeful. I think our trade relationship is very strong. Um, Despite the rhetoric and despite the politics, I'm hopeful that both countries will continue to trade together and prosper and have healthy ties. And so because these strategic political uh, linkages are key to enhance economic and trade linkages, and one key element of that trade linkage is commodity prices, because Australia uh, does supply quite a lot of commodities to China, how do you expect that relationship to and trade link to expand there? And what does it mean for overall commodity prices, particularly metals? You know, one of the things I say to people is we, we have iron ore. We basically dig. Um, in Western Australia and certain parts of Australia, we dig in the ground and we take that ore and we put it into a ship and we sell that to China who pays us $150 a ton. And that is our largest export. And so if we want to continue benefiting from resources, whether it's iron ore, whether it's metallurgical or thermal coal, whether it's liquefied natural gas, all these resources, if we want to export them and get paid the billions and billions of dollars that end up helping our fiscal situation through taxation and royalties, there has to be a counterbalance. And so I think we're very blessed in Australia to have not only a, a proximity to the growing markets in Asia, but high quality world-class resources. And I think that's going to really help the situation. We're very different to remote regions in Africa, for example, that also have resources, but don't have the infrastructure, don't have proximity don't have capital markets, don't have a lot of the things that we have. So at the end of the day, these are the things that have helped Australia prosper over the past 200 years. And I think that we are very well placed um, around these strategic national interests to continue trading. So I don't know what will happen to the iron ore price, but it doesn't feel like commodity prices are pulling down. And I think the one key area of commodities Australia is looking at strategically growing in its agricultural commodities, not just agriculture itself, 
but the feedstocks, um, your potash, your potassium, everything that's required in agriculture, um, but perhaps slightly up higher on the technology curve. Uh, Peter, let's cap the conversation with this question. Given the wild gyration sweeping financial markets and just the different factors coming into play, higher interest costs, inflationary pressures, um, the big question is how do we find a sweet spot between reasonable returns and capital protection? So what kind of portfolio allocation between the different asset classes uh, would you recommend for this? Uh, I think it all comes down to preference. If you're an individual investor and you're driving your car today and you're listening to me sitting in Sydney, Australia, I think the fundamentals are very different to the person that's sitting next to me having a coffee right now. If you're investing in real estate, you want to invest in something that has income growth. It's not just about the rent that you're getting today, but what type of rent will you get into the future? How will that grow? Do you have an asset that can withstand rising interest rates through your ability to increase your rents? If you're investing in stocks, you want to be investing in businesses that have the ability to have pricing power. Inflation is not necessarily a bad thing. When inflation goes up, the cost of everything goes up. And so some businesses actually benefit. If you have pricing power, if you can put up your prices greater than inflation, you actually benefit. And it's your opportunity to take out competition and grow your market share. And so for me, it all comes down to income quality, back to fundamentals. Cheap debt is being taken away. And now it's time to focus on the real things that drive economic returns, which is income. All right, Peter, thanks very much for speaking to us this morning. That was Peter Eshow, co-founder of Wealthy, a real estate investment platform based in Sydney, talking to us about some of the trends that he sees moving markets in the uh, short to medium term. I mean, I think his perspective about interest rates was very interesting that, you know, as we are going from ultra low to low, and that will naturally translate to just more volatility in the markets. Absolutely. 7.17 in the morning, we're heading into some messages. And after that, we discuss the question, are more highways the solution to traffic congestion in Klang Valley. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.